This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. Radio. This week, we welcome doctor, researcher, and CEO of the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, Dr. Ken Ford. His interests and specialties have varied from the study of consciousness, artificial intelligence, and optimizing the cognitive functions of the human brain. Eventually, this led him to study the impact of ketones and a ketogenic diet as a means to improve performance. Focusing on a diet of fatty acids and a ketone-based metabolism has been the heart of Dr. Ford's research and the meat of our conversation. Hear how the brain deals with trauma, be it from seizures or TBI, differently based on diet. Also, find out why your training and performance may be the best indicator of whether or not a ketogenic diet is right for you. Dr. Ken Ford talks in depth about the impact of ketones and ketone esters and how they interact with genetics, trauma, disease, and biological factors to improve function. In a world where politics and myths surround things like treating cancer through diet, Ford continues to fight the good fight and educate the masses on the potential of ketosis. Put on your thinking headphones because the doctor is in and school is in session. This is episode 129. What's happening, Power Athlete Nation? Welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. This is Denny. I'm joined with John, Luke, and Tex. Our guest today is Dr. Ken Ford. Dr. Ford is the founder and CEO of the Florida Institute for Human and Machine Cognition. The IHMC has grown into one of the nation's premier research organizations with world-class scientists and engineers investigating a broad range of topics related to extending human cognitive and perceptual capacities. He is also the author of hundreds of scientific papers and six books. He was involved with the NFL's Head Health Program, and he has been experimenting with ketonic diets for relatively a long time. Dr. Ford, thanks for taking some time and joining us on Power Athlete Radio. Oh, it's great to be here. Uh, you know what? Let's start with what exactly you guys are doing at the Florida Institute for Human and Machine Cognition and how that led you to researching in ketogenic diets. Well, the uh, IHMC has always been focused on using science and technology to leverage and extend human performance. So typically the technologies we have been using were electromechanical, computational sorts of technologies. So we were building systems intended to be prosthetic or orthotic with respect to human cognition or perception or exoskeletons for physical performance. And maybe about 10 years ago or eight years ago, we started also looking at molecular means of extending human performance. And I, at the time, was serving on the Defense Science Board. This is the uh, science advisory board that advises the Secretary of Defense about uh, topics of importance uh, having to do with science and technology. And I uh, volunteered to lead a group looking at uh, how the warfighter in the future might be uh, enhanced appropriately. And one of the topics we came across was uh, exogenous ketone esters that DARPA had uh, funded NIH to develop. And I, uh, when I was a child, I was epileptic. So I knew about the ketogenic diet from childhood, uh, but hadn't correlated it with improved human performance. And uh, uh, this is what sort of, as you said, pulled me into that rabbit hole. Wow. 
Uh, Doc, um, in ter I mean, uh, there's a lot of pretty good information. We were talking for a second off uh, offline. Um, you know, when I first was introduced to ketogenic diet was in 1999, working with uh, Dr. De Pasquale, uh from the anabolic diet, and started doing a cyclical ketogenic diet. And I saw, you know, for me, uh, you know, muscle mass performance. I mean, all these things really kind of uh, exploded, and you know, body composition, and um, it. Uh, you know, became this kind of, you know, very interesting deal. And what was, was interesting when I talked to people about it, like uh, very few people or many people were very skeptical. So why is it that, you know, as a kid you, you know, had epilepsy and learned a ketogenic diet and probably used it and then there became this kind of, you know, all of a sudden science kind of faded away from it and now it's kind of making a resurgence. Um, any kind of observation or anything that you've seen why that, you know, we had this technology and now here there's kind of been a, a regrowth, a rebirth in it? Yes, I think uh, a couple of things. The, you know, the early science uh, on the ketogenic diet was, as you just said, it was really focused on diminishing seizures, and it wasn't so much aimed at fitness. And uh, the version of the diet that was used with epileptic children was not much like we use now, right? So it was uh, a very, very extreme version of the diet that people found difficult. Uh, in recent days, the, a lot of the excitement about the diet, uh, I think, is spurred by athletic and cognitive uh, performance issues. And uh, the exogenous ketones, particular ketone esters, are going to sweep into the market. You know, they're used now in high-end endurance sports like bicycle racing, and, and they're, they, are, they are a major advantage. And so I imagine that this will be a widespread issue. The um, uh, when I retired from the NFL, I mean, I ended up playing for a decade. And when I retired, uh, Dr. Amen had his big study through on the uh, concussions and the brain injuries here in Newport Beach. And I ended up getting selected and asked to come in and get scans done. And they did a bunch of evaluations on me. And at the end of the deal, um, you know, I go sit with Dr. Amen after about you know a couple days worth of testing. And the thing I always laughed about is he sits down, he shows me a big picture of my brain, and then he starts kind of pointing to the area of my brain on the left side. Uh, there was damage to my left frontal lobe, and he looks, he's like, you know, based on what we've seen, you probably played, you know, offensive line, um, you know, somewhere on, you know, maybe on the left side based on the impacts to the left side of your brain, and, you know, we think you played maybe 7 to 10, 12 years. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty accurate. Uh, you know, and he goes, you know, that part of your brain deals with sympathy and empathy and some cognitive function for emotion. Um, but uh, the good news is, is uh, your IQ and your uh, retention and cognitive in terms of like that part of your brain was actually uh, undamaged and was one of the best we'd seen. So he kind of does that bomb and then he kind of comes back and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. so you're saying I'm smart? And <laughs> uh, what was interesting is after I left there, um, I ended up contacting my friend Matt Lalonde, who's a doctor of organic chemistry at Harvard, who, who's a good friend of Rob Wolf as, as well. And I told him, I was like, Matt, I got this uh, this brain damage deal. Uh, what do I do? And he was like, hold on, let me do some checking. And he hit me back a couple days later and said, you know, the um, information surrounding a ketogenic diet uh, was so far beyond anything they could, they could really find in terms of healing some form of brain damage. And at that point, I think I ate, you know, almost zero carbohydrate and ate a ketogenic diet. I mean, it was almost zero for the next 12 months. And then at that point, I was retested, and I couldn't really find any problems with my brain at that point. Wow, that's that that's amazing. There and Matt was right. I mean, there's lots of research pointing for the use of ketones both pre-injury and post-injury. And this is something that folks ought to be looking at from the military to the NFL and and society in general. I mean, TBI is our single most common disease. And I don't know of anything more promising for uh for, for mild TBI and concussion. Uh, it's very, very promising. Do you think that the ability to reverse the CTEs and the damage from the brain for NFL players, I mean, could it be mitigated and even uh, corrected? I guess you could say if a player was, you know, in the NFL eating a ketogenic diet using some form of ketone esters and then even post-helping. Because yep. I, I still have, um, you know, I went to dinner recently with my buddy Kyle Turley, who's, you know, got some serious problems going on. I talked to him a little bit about the ketogenic diet and some of the things I did because he asked me, he goes, how come you're not having the same problems? He's like, you still, you know, he goes, you're, you're sharp, you're right, you do all these things. I'm like, honestly, um, I think um, for me especially, uh, working with Dr. Deepa Squall early, but also I tested um, 
threw Dr. Inklet on for food allergies, for for gluten, for soy, for um, uh, you know a, a bunch of different you know corn and some of these things, and so I ended up just cutting out of my diet and naturally gravitated me towards kind of a kind of ketogenic, kind of paleo-esque diet, and I think maybe that prevented some of the problems. Um, yes. But it sounds like uh, not only in terms of cognitive function and really safeguarding, but uh, you know the, really the theme of this deal is power and power your performance. Can we talk a little bit about how ketones work for performance and kind of what could you know people really going down this road expect to see or want to see or kind of what some of the research is talking about? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know when uh, when people talk to me about ketones that are interested in athletic performance, especially explosive sort of sorts of strength, power athletes. Uh, you know, even our, our friend, uh, we have a mutual friend that tells me this every time we talk. You know, he tells me, I never feel better than when I'm ketotic, but I just don't think I can do the sport I'm interested in when I'm ketotic. Uh, and uh, a couple things about that. Uh, you know, as, as we age, but I, I think this would apply even to young athletes, um, there's a lot of advantage in having upregulated fat, fat transport, and as we discussed off the air earlier, enhanced mitochondrial function and density. And the ketogenic diet brings that, and particularly it sensitizes skeletal muscle to the effects of anabolic hormones and to some very key amino acids like leucine. So the diet is leucine sparing, uh, and this is why you don't need quite as much protein. You still need a lot of protein, but not quite as much as you would when you're ketogenic. And the skeletal muscle, as I said, uh, becomes less resistant, more sensitized to IGF-1 and, uh, and its effects as well as other anabolic hormones. So it's quite possible to gain strength and be very lean, as you know. I mean, you are a, a very strong person and still very lean. But when you talk to the guy in the street, they think the ketogenic diet is not for folks like that, but that it's you know for cyclists or marathon runners, and that's that's not accurate. Well, yeah, I mean, we've been proving that for years. Um, for people at home, I mean, I, I know you know we sit in this uh, you know kind of the position of knowing, but you know, like let's break it down a little bit for some of maybe some of the people out there that really don't understand like, uh, you know, maybe some macronutrient ratios or a little bit of uh, understanding. You made a great point of like how much protein you need because that's like the biggest question and uh, people ask me this all the time about, well, how much protein, how much fat? And I, I always recommend them like you're going to need, uh, you know, here's like a base kind of template that we use but at the end of the day, you're going to have to get some uh, some keto strips. You're going to have to order something to check to see if you're in ketosis. So could you give us a little bit of kind of a, a background or at least a place to start? Oh, absolutely, and the, the most important thing is the, the blood test. So, so most of my friends that, you know, they explain, well, I'm ketogenic because I'm peeing on these strips, uh, and I can't do explosive sport, like I can't wrestle at the highest level, or I can't do jujitsu at a high level. Uh, what I always ask those people to do is to blood test. The, the urine strips measure acetoacetate, and... Uh, they're measuring the acetoacetate that you're losing. Uh, acetoacetate is a useful ketone body, but the one that you want to measure is beta-hydroxybutyrate. And the way to measure that is a finger, you know, a finger stick, like a, like a glucose type test. And uh, those are very accurate. And beta-hydroxybutyrate is stable, uh, whereas acetoacetate goes up and down, you know, quite a bit during the day. So it's way better to measure BHB. And then in terms of uh, macronutrients, uh, it seems that there's a good bit of human variation there. But uh, uh, over the years, uh, I have uh, reduced my fat intake. Uh, when I was young, it was about 90%. And that's what the Johns Hopkins diet for epilepsy is. Uh, but that's went away. and. Uh, so now I operate at around 65 or 70 percent uh, by calorie, that is, uh, fat, and uh, most of the rest uh, protein, and particularly essential amino acids. But I, I watch it pretty closely. Um, the, um, and there is some variation across people there. Um, I think a lot of people in the ketogenic diet, where they screw it up is protein. Uh, 
either way too much or not enough. And uh, I think it's a Goldilocks deal. You know, you, you, you want not too little, not too much, sort of just right. Would you say that, um, you know, because I mean, we've seen people all over the map. I mean, I, I had one athlete, um, guy who plays or played linebacker for the Raiders, um, you know, but we were always using the pH drift. So now that you're telling me this, I'm like, man, a lot of my problem, my research or my anecdotal stuff is kind of, I got to throw it out the window now. But, I mean, based on the strips, I mean, he was eating at least one gram of protein per pound of body weight and was still able to stay uh, ketotic. But now I'm going to have to start pushing people on the blood strips that you just kind of threw a hand grenade <laughs> in that. So thanks. Yeah, <laughs> man. I wish we would have talked sooner, but um, you know, I you know the, the other way, and I always know it. If I uh, if I'm walking around and thinking to myself that I brushed my teeth today, that's usually my good indication of whether or not I'm ketosis or uh, ketotic. But the other one too, and and I'm sure Doc, you run into this when you start training. All of a sudden, you get that like ammonia smell, and then oh, yeah. you know when I go take my clothes off, my wife is like, "What were you doing at the gym?" And I'm like, "I know." She's like, "God, that ketogenic diet." I mean, it's like a, almost like an ammonia where you, you know, after about 10 uses of your T-shirt, you got to go throw them away and get some new ones. Yeah, that's acetone, the, very much like the stuff you can buy in the hardware store, actually. And uh, when, you're, when you're ketogenic, your liver uh, produces uh, three ketone bodies. Acetone, which is useless and smells bad, uh, that's the one you're referring to. Uh, acetoacetate, that's very useful for the brain. And that's what and that's what gives it its anti-seizure uh, component. At least that's the current belief. And that's the one that comes out in the urine. And then beta-hydroxybutyrate. That's the one that you measure in the blood. In terms of um, like we talked earlier about um, motor unit recruitment, is there any kind of correlation between like ketones and the ability to fire motor units? Like, is that like a one-to-one -one deal that obviously if you're ketotic, um, you know, I mean, we like you said, people really thought it's for endurance athletes, but you're seeing it more for power athletes, people that need to really generate big horsepower, short duration, kind of, you know, big uh, ATP, that first energy system. I mean, is there a correlation between your body's ability to fire motor units and type 2 fibers and type X and everything you go at with, uh, with ketones? Uh, I hope so. That's an area that needs more research, but the, the fundamental research that's been done is very promising in that direction and and again you know I mentioned it earlier but one of my primary interests at this point I'm 60 years old uh, is maintaining strength and fitness uh, later into life you know uh, we we just you know from 50 on we're losing muscle mass at a shocking rate uh, one or two percent a year and beyond 60 it's even uglier it gets worse every decade and uh, there's really no treatment. And, uh, you know, when you test these people and if you really dig in on it, I think they give us clues that are applicable to younger power athletes. This is the reason I'm bringing it up. You know, so you, you and, and people have looked at how might we mitigate this loss of muscle mass is called sarcopenia. And, you know, growth hormone has been tried in the aging population and it definitely increases muscle protein synthesis and muscle mass, but it's unclear it leads to any functional change or gains in strength. Now, I'm talking about the aging population here. It's unclear. And IGF-1, for example, in the aging population, uh, their muscles are often resistant to it. It's very much like insulin resistance that we've all heard of. Uh, IGF-1 is chemically much like insulin. And so uh, actually in the aging muscle, we see resistance to the IGF-1. So they not only have much less IGF-1, but their muscles are resistant to it. And uh, the ketogenic diet increases muscle IGF-1 about 30%. Uh, growth hormone goes up 30 or 40%. Uh, but blood uh, IGF-1, the one you get tested for, goes down 30 or 40%. So is this Doc, so is it me? So it's uh, not only stimulating the body, but um, uh, is it something where, like, if you were to give somebody exogenous IGF-1, they would like absorb it more efficiently, or is it something where, like, the you know, I, I don't know. I always think about uh, insulin resistance, and all of a sudden over time, I mean, whether it's muscle mass, lack of training, age, whatever, all these other key factors. So is the body really um, just in terms of like? <sighs> 
I guess I could say like like uh, is it muscle mass? I mean, what would be like what would prevent somebody from really absorbing IGF one? I mean, because if you think uh, you know growth hormone and all of these other key factors, I mean, higher protein diet, I and mean, we can go down a, a rabbit hole talking about what develops IGF one and how you kind of go through it with insulin like growth factor. So I mean, is it is is it muscle mass? Is it lack of training? Is it just age, or is it just what's happening as people get older? I, I think it's a combination. But as we age, it's pretty clear that we develop IGF-1 resistance at the receptors in the muscle. So it, much like insulin resistance, and as you know, if you're ketogenic, your insulin levels are driven down greatly. And that's because your insulin receptors become very sensitive. And this is uh, uh, something similar appears to be going on with respect to muscle IGF-1, not blood IGF-1. So the blood IGF-1 that you get when you go to the doc and get a blood test, that goes down uh, quite a bit, maybe 30%. But the IGF-1 you care about is the muscle IGF-1, and that go seems to go up. Doc, we had Dr. DePasquale uh, on the show about a year ago, and I know he has a relationship with John, so John maybe can help fill in the gaps, but I'm curious if there's a difference between the macros you want to prescribe with a keto approach versus his anabolic approach. Was that addressed to to? Oh, uh, oh no, no. He, he was talking to you, Doc. Um, he, he was asking, is there a difference between uh, like a, a cyclical keto um, in terms of benefit, like with uh, you know, we're talking about really this kind of idea of performance. I mean, using like Dr. Deepaswell's model, where it's uh, usually uh, he he gives you about a 12 to 14 day window to get ketotic, and then from there it's usually five days of um, eating your you know keto macros with usually a, a 12 to 24, maybe even 36, 48 hour refeed where you kind of switch it over and you basically eat carbohydrates and then uh, obviously go back and it's kind of a five day on, two day off kind of deal. Yeah, I, I don't do that, but uh, you know, staying in ketosis purely by diet is in, in this world we live in is pretty challenging. So I sometimes go out of ketosis by accident and other times I, I think it's important to maintain metabolic flexibility. And so I often intentionally go out softly, I'm not down super low, but this is why the meter is so important. You know, uh, I know how I feel at different levels. And, uh, you know, if I'm, say, at two millimolars, I uh, feel great, you know, smart, effective in the gym. Uh, and when I get below about 0.8 millimolars, I see a performance decrement. And so I, I use the blood test to maintain uh, my performance with some precision. So for me, what I do is um, during the week, I'm, I'm ketotic and, and I feel great in my training. And then we come in and train on Saturday morning. And then what I'll do is I'll go home and uh, I usually like try to extend out my meal time. I don't eat right after. I have to say, I, I've kind of come to the conclusion that cortisol is not nearly as scary a thing as most people really play it out to be. And I, I, and Doc, you could probably fill in the gap for me on this. And I think there's a, there's something with cortisol and ketones and the ketogenic diet that actually, if I extend out that window after we train real hard to a couple hours, um, and then I eat uh, a carbohydrate, like I'll sit down, I make my kids pancakes, or we'll sit down and eat a big mess of pancakes. And, um, and it's pretty interesting because after I eat the pancakes with syrup, I can go in and literally as I'm sitting there eating, I, I, uh, my whole body starts sweating, like to the point where I got sweat, like yeah. dripping off me to where my wife is kind of like, and my kids are like, Daddy, why are you so wet? And I'm like, uh, and, I, and then it's interesting. After I finish, I go look in the mirror and I look like I, um, like all the veins pop out. I actually look significantly leaner. Like I can see all my abs. Like it's, it's crazy. I get a vein in my neck. And um, it's, uh, it, but when I didn't do, you know, like if I came home from working out and I ate, uh, immediately after it didn't happen. It didn't happen until I take like that three hours to maybe let cortisol run. So I, I wonder if there's, um, you know, and then for me, I usually only do one or two meals and I'm back in it where other people do a bigger refeed. But can you talk about it? Is there a correlation between ketones and, and ketogenesis and maybe something with cortisol? There, there well could be. It's not, uh, hasn't been studied very in, in much depth, you know, from a scientific perspective, but Many, many people who do resistance training workouts, uh, you know, have noticed a couple hours later they're a fat-burning machine. I mean, they literally feel hot and they're, they're perspiring excessively. 
Uh, my uh, staff here near my office hates it on workout day because they know the AC is going to be set to some ridiculously cold level. <laughs> you know, otherwise I, I look like I'm melting or something. Um, happens. It's uh, it's the, the strangest thing, and um, I try to t explain it to people, um, and I, I try to test it in terms of like marking it based on kind of some physical, uh, not only appearance but also some you know feedback like you know how I feel. But uh, the biggest one I notice is during the week the keto the keto diet or uh, ketotic diet and uh, makes me very sharp and I feel like a uh, laser beam focus and I, I really only do the carbs on a Saturday because after I eat the carbs I just want to go sit on the couch and do nothing and I find it like very very hard for me to to really motivate and go you know get a lot of projects or feel like I'm going to take on the world after I eat a bunch of carbohydrates I just want to go sit there with my kids and just kind of hang out and do nothing and go play in the pool or mess around but it's a, it's pretty night and day like as soon as I eat those carbs it just really kind of just kills my, um, it's almost like a sedative, I think it's the only way I can say it, like somebody sitting down and having an after dinner drink. So I mean, it's um, until you do it, you don't really realize the power of carbohydrate. Uh, is it, uh, you know, I mean, and uh, it, it's probably such a fascinating deal, I mean, we probably just don't even understand it as much, but it just seems like almost like a fog hits me. Yeah, and that's why I don't do that very often, right? So the, it, and if it, I've noticed it's a matter of degree. This is another reason why I advocate the precision, you know, of using the, the blood test in that, you know, if I, if I was ketogenic and went to the gym and came home and ate uh, pancakes with syrup on it, I would literally be in a fog. Like I, in Italy, I hit the, the gym and then uh, had half a bowl of pasta and I, I felt like a zombie. The, uh, but if uh, I had a small amount of carbs, enough to take me way down, but not crash me through the floor, uh, you don't feel nearly as bad. So when I go out, I never go out to the extreme that you described, right? It would just be like, you know, some rice with my sushi or uh, uh, some sweet potato, and it'll take me out, but, uh, or right on the edge of being out, you know, like right at 0.6 millimolars. Uh, but I really don't like that sort of um, foggy feeling. Doc, um, with the the ketogenic diet and performance, I mean, we've really you know you're looking at it in terms of athletic development. But then, I mean, really where we're seeing the power, we talked about it slightly earlier about the CTE and also the the TBI. Can you talk a little bit about how it works to safeguard the brain and how it might not only safeguard these guys but also maybe reverse some of the effects that a lot of these uh, you know athletes in the military um, are running into? Because uh, I I work like Rob as a contractor for Naval Special Warfare, and the amount of TBI and damage that these guys have seen from a lot of the um, explosions and the, the 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 shape charges has been pretty pretty devastating. I mean, similar to what we've seen for NFL players. Yeah, it's it's widespread in that community. Uh, well, the one of the main ways that the ketones are helpful in this regard is that TBI injuries, traumatic brain injuries, alter cerebral glucose metabolism. And, you know, normally the brain is really depending on glucose. It always is, but it, normally it's really the only fuel. And um, the glucose metabolism is badly altered when you have a brain injury. And, uh, and, and in a direction that makes it less effective, uh, less brain injury. And uh, this is something that the ketones can quickly uh, ameliorate because, you know, you're able to, the brain will preferentially uh, metabolize ketones. So if it has a choice between ketones and glucose, it'll take ketones every time. So this essentially uh, improves the energy level in the brain and it also reduces the inflammation. So a lot of the damage from TBI is from the swelling. And this is a complicated issue having to do with uh, ports and uh, in the brain. And ketones reduce that swelling. And that's uh, another reason why I think it's, uh, it could be both prophylactic, you know, pre-injury, but also post-injury. It's, it's something that's not getting the attention it, it should have. And then, of course, the genetic issue is, uh, you know, folks that are carry the APOE4 allele are probably more sensitive. Uh, their brains are more sensitive to injury. And um, in general, that doesn't get looked at enough, in my view. Um, I don't, I'm not suggesting what society should do with that information, 
but it would be important to know that somebody had a propensity to brain injury, uh, genetic propensity, and that could influence treatment uh, and uh, judgment about uh, whether the injury was severe enough that the activity should be curtailed. So now you're talking about a point which, you know, you show up to the combine as a potential NFL player and here they're taking, you know, saliva swabs and actually doing some genetic testing and knowing, hey, this person might have a, you know, genetic propensity or a predisposition towards brain injury with repeated impacts. Oh, geez. Yeah, and, and you can see the Pandora's box that opens. Uh, yeah. I've raised that question, as you can imagine, and uh, they, they, they chased you out with torches. <laughs> I mean, li literally followed me into the men's room. <laughs> oh, I, 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 well, I mean, uh, it'd be good to connect you. I, I know I, I get, we were on email with Doc Ankladon, but he did some testing for the NFL a couple or a bunch of years ago, and similar deal. They basically uh, like you know like like chased him out of there with torches. So he, um, you know, those guys are. You know, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. I mean, the NFL has done such a great job of, of weaving their business into the fabric of America to the point where people don't even realize it's a business. It's, um, I mean, they, they, uh, whoever their PR people, however they were able to do it, is uh, probably one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. I mean, so much so that you have FanDuel and, and DraftKings and all these other things that are, you know, I mean, like, you know, out now gambling that are now sponsoring them. I mean, it's just, it's, it's phenomenal in terms of the business. And, you know, letting people realize that, or once people realize it, and, and what's sad is a lot of people don't give a shit, which is what we found as NFL players, that once you retire, once you're not able to stand out on the stands of uh, the Coliseum and let them cheer for you, uh, you know, really the, the worth and what people really expect, it just kind of goes by the wayside. And, and then you have all these players that are having severe, severe problems. And, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, what people don't understand is that, Obviously, the brain injury is one, um, you know, due to the impacts, but also the lifestyle with the, you know, the painkillers and the anti-inflammatories and a lot of the other drugs, um, I, I think is as big a contributing factor as anything. I mean, when uh, when I retired, I ran into a buddy of mine, and he's like, man, have you had trouble getting off uh, the painkillers? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, you know, uh, you know, how many painkillers were you taking? I'm like, I never took any of that shit. I'm like, I, um, they used to give them to us. I just... For me, the pain never bothered me the same way it bothered other people. And uh, he's like, man, I was chewing up 12, 14 painkillers a day. And he goes, I really had to, like, make a conscious effort to wean myself off. And i I got to believe that, um, you know, the amount of anti-inflammatories, painkillers, and a lot of the other drugs have to be contributing to some of these things. Maybe it's lifestyle, diet. I mean, you probably it's a holistic approach for the most part. Yeah, uh, I, I totally agree with it, everything you just said. And, and, you know, the APOE4 allele that we're talking about is – is likely very overrepresented in the NFL population, um, and and so that's interesting. And you know, the military has the same question when we talk about people using shape charges and having injuries uh, of this kind. Do you do you test for that? Because if you do, now you know, and. Uh, the population that's likely to want to do this kind of work or to play in the NFL. Uh, is thought to probably be overrepresented, and uh, so it's a you just there's not an easy answer to that. So would, would you say that this? Uh, did you say it was a POE four? APOE. Oh, APOE four. Yeah. So if you're a four four, in other words, if your mom gave you a four and your dad gave you a four, you have about twenty times the risk for Alzheimer's. But you have you have elevated risk for all sort of brain insult, and then if your one parent gave you a four and maybe the other a three, uh, if you're a female you have six to eight times the Alzheimer's risk, and a male would be less, maybe double. Uh, but uh, so three fours and four fours essentially have more fragile brains. Uh, it's believed that the APOE allele is conserved. Uh, from an evolutionary perspective, because it confers other it confers advantages uh, to some extent in your youth. So they tend to be folks that uh, don't bruise up as much. You know, they heal quicker. Um, you know, they have other characteristics that in their youth they have uh, better short-term memories. Uh, but you know, at the time that this was evolving, there was only youth. I mean, nobody lived long enough to develop Alzheimer's, or very few people, 
you know, that wasn't the issue. The issue was whether you would long, live long enough to pass on your genes. Well, there's actually, uh, so it's kind of a Pandora's box, really, or, or even kind of this idea that, hey, you know, um, and, and I think this has always been probably pretty true. I, I know uh, a couple of years ago there was a Newport Research Center, a guy named Dr. Jin, who I, I got invited to do some more testing with, and he found that there was a, a very, very specific um, pattern firing of brains of NFL and, and, you know, other professional athletes that worked at a different rate. They actually uh, ended up functioning, I think it was like 30 milliseconds faster, so they had the ability to make decisions quicker. It just so happened that also those people were extremely um, reckless just because they didn't, you know, there was really no, you know, no conscious decision. There was just go. And these are the guys that, you know, he had tested guys that were, you know, uh, you know, starter in the NFL, and then their brother never made it out of college. And uh, it was pretty interesting. He said it was almost a, um, you know, he could guess what how your brain fired based on your athletic performance. And uh, so we went in there and we got tested. And both my brothers played in college, and they ended up not having it, whereas I ended up having that. So he's wow. like, you know, it's one of those things where you have to almost, you know, realize you have it and then realize that you can't be impulsive in life. And um, pretty fascinating, but what really got me kind of down this road was he started showing me different brains because he had tested different people and, you know, looking at the uh, the different rhythms and the cycles of the brain, and he, he started posting them up. And he said, what do you think about that one? I'm like, uh, I don't know. He's like, that's, uh, that's Alzheimer's, that's schizophrenia, and he was able to show uh, through different patterns and different cycles and, you know, peaks and valleys of the brain where the different bumps and problems were, were correlated with different, uh, you know, mental problems. And then we got into this whole deal with sleep, and he said, actually, you know, sleep being the major safeguard for it. So what I was going to go back to is, is there uh, a function of sleep uh, that has to do with the ketogenic diet? Because I mean, recently I got hit with a question where a guy had been trying to do a ketogenic or a ketogenic, try, trying to do a ketogenic diet, and when he got ketotic, he could not sleep, and he was having terrible insomnia. So I wonder, is there, you know, have you guys looked at how sleep kind of plays into ketosis, or how it kind of plays with the brain and some of those, I mean, this is probably a really a whole other podcast, but no, no, we we haven't though. We recognize that sleep is absolutely critical. Of course, a lot of the benefit of ketogenic diets uh, don't accrue uh, and for you know an extended period for some people, and I think uh, you know that varies. Some people seem to be able to go through the initial adaptation you know, pretty smoothly. And other people really seem to suffer, and uh, you know, I, th I think the benefits continue for years. So the uh, it, it becomes easier and easier uh, as it goes on, and I, I think for many people, the first two or three weeks are pretty miserable. Is it something where the ketone salts do those? Um, well, it, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, obviously, you can get into ketosis and do a, a you know ketogenic diet just using you know some rebalancing macros and make some better food choices. But is uh, is there you know do you use ketone salts? Is it something where you just do a diet, or how do you really kind of use those in the mix, or how do you throw them in? Well, you know, I have access to all of that, uh, the salts and the esters. The the esters are typically stronger and. Those will be coming on, becoming available in the next few years. Um, you know, cu currently those are really a research uh, chemical. Um, I address over later. You can send me a whole bunch. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's going to become more and more available, right? Uh, I don't use them often. Maybe uh, once a week. Uh, like if I blood test before going to the gym and I see my ketone level is low. Uh, I like it to be reasonably high because if I blood test before the gym and after I've burned, you know, I'm reduced at least one millimolar. Uh, so if I was 2.5 going in, I'm one millimolar or 1.5 going out. Uh, so I track that. The um, There are some real advantages in the exogenous ketones. One is that <clears throat> You know, for some people, they're just not willing to eat the diet, or their lifestyle is such. Maybe they're in the military. You know, and for some, at some times, the diet is difficult in that context. And uh, this was the original reason the esters were developed. Uh, also, the esters get you to a very ketotic level. So if you're using the highest quality esters, and you are uh, in 30 minutes. Uh, you're around four or five millimolars. Well, that's very ketotic. 
And uh, the reason for the interest in this is one of the application areas for the development of these esters is the Navy uh, diving community, which uh, with the use of the rebreather uh, suffer a seizure problem. And these seizures are about 50% fatal and any seizure uh, on a mission is really the end of that mission. So the, it turns out, of course, remember I mentioned earlier that acetoacetate, one of the three ketone bodies, seems to account for the uh, improvement in seizure control with epileptics. It's probably also the one that's having that effect uh, for divers. So there's quite a bit of research now, particularly research led by Dominic D'Agostino at the University of South Florida. He's also affiliated with IHMC here. And what he has is a mouse model of the diver. So these mice seize under the same conditions the divers seize. And then he infuses the mouse with the ketone esters and it greatly extends the range, the seizure-free range of performance in terms of depth and duration. And this is one of the big drivers in the development of the ketone esters. So, Doc, I mean, uh, I'm going to try to go down here and be like little Mary Shelley. Does this mean that, you know, maybe potentially for uh, an NFL player or uh, an athlete that has a huge head trauma that maybe the, um, you know, the giving of ketone esters immediately, uh, you know, following some form of traumatic or big kind of, you know, hit yeah. on the field could in theoretics, uh, you know, help them and maybe, you know, safeguard them against further damage? Exactly. In fact, you know, the, there still needs to be more research, but that's always true. And uh, speaking for myself, if I were playing in the NFL and being subjected to that kind of potential injury, I would ingest the ketone esters uh, before the game and get myself good and ketotic. And if I had a particularly hard hit, I would do just as you uh, envisioned. I would. So uh, you know the. Um, so there. I mean, it, it's always amazing when uh, you know we're sitting here talking. I start like replaying things in my mind, and uh, the one thing that uh, was kind of pretty apparent to me. I mean, obviously, I was always in a you know pretty decent ketotic state, yep. but uh, during the game, they would always, always hand us uh, you know Gatorade was a big yep. deal. They would push Gatorade, and I knew if I drank the Gatorade, it instantly made my legs feel real heavy, and I did not feel like I had the same reaction. And I realized that pretty early on. So whenever they handed me Gatorade, I would always just pour it out and put water in it. And I always drank water and never drank the Gatorade. And uh, I always knew, and it was interesting because I, I remember when I, you know, took hits. I mean, I never really had anything. I remember when I came in the NFL, they defined a concussion as you would know you got a concussion when you got knocked unconscious. <laughs> and uh, and then I remember in 2007, 2008, my last years. Uh, I remember there was a, you know, after they released all that kind of Rydell helmet stuff and guys were having more and more problems. And I played with Kevin Turner, who's the, the you know, uh, our fullback in Philly, who's, you know, the, the uh, main plaintiff for the head injury deal against the NFL. Um, they kind of reclassed it. And I remember they talked about it and they were like, oh, oh you know, um, you know, you'll know you get a concussion when, you know, you have some, you know, impaired vision and kind of other key factors. And then when I went to Dr. Amon's deal, he's like, well, let me redefine concussion for you. Any type of hit where you feel any type of disorientation, uh, any change in vision, bell, bell ringing, uh, you know, and he kind of went through this and he goes, how many concussions do you think you've had? And I, like, looked at him and I was like, I mean, more than 70,000. <laughs> and, well, uh, and he, um, you know, and I mean, it, it was pretty interesting. And I, and I, I think sitting with him was the one that I really kind of realized because I had to go to a support group. Uh, they asked me, like, hey, we come to support group. We have a couple of ex-NFL players. And there was a guy in his 40s that had Alzheimer's in there. And there were some guys, and there were some pretty traumatic injuries. And I remember, like, sitting there, you know, sitting with these guys. And I, I always thought that that foggy, kind of heavy leg feeling I had from Gatorade contributed to it. And, I, I mean, it would kind of make sense a little bit if you give somebody a bunch of fructose, a bunch of glucose, and a bunch of sugar, you know, during the game in the, in the middle of some of the biggest hits. I mean, that could be something that make them more susceptible or even make, uh, make the effects even greater. Absolutely. It would strike me as a very bad idea. Wow. What about, uh, what about like, people with autoimmune diseases? Um, I had a client that I'm working with now and she's she's got like some some irritable irritable bowel 
she's all jacked up on pharma, and she just can't, she just can't find something that works with her. And when we talk about like microbiomes and gut health, uh, you know, power athlete likes to say in their you know presentation uh, that the gut is like the window to the immune system. Would would a ketogenic diet help? This girl who has this, you know, uh, these these digestive issues, it it might, and uh, I know that's not a very satisfactory answer, but and, you know, this is there's so much human variation in this matter. Uh, you know, there's, you know, the the microbiome is, you know, there's 1,500 roughly different bacterial species in us, and we all have a different mix. Uh, often radically different, and the diet absolutely affects what that mix is. And um, you know, we're talking about a hundredfold more microbes in our gut than human cells. So you know, this is three or four pounds. Like in a big guy, it's easy four pounds of microbes that we're all carrying around with us. And so it, this is a super complicated area because. If you can imagine, uh, if there's a hundredfold more microbes than cells in our body, then think of the genetics here, right? So the, you know, just a huge difference between our relatively simple genome. Humans have only about 25,000 genes, uh, and the complexity of the interaction between our genes and the genome of the microbiome. Because the microbiome, is, you know, these microbes are short-lived, so their evolution rate and their adaptation rate is, of course, very, very quick, and it's a complicated interaction between our genes and the genes of our bugs, uh, essentially. And this is how humans are. I, I believe this is what accounts for the incredible human. Uh, uh, difference that we see between, say, us and a chimpanzee. You know, we're 99.5% the same genetically as a chimpanzee, but we're really nothing like a chimpanzee. And this is because although our genome is pretty simple, as I mentioned, we have only 25,000 genes, whereas, you know, like an earthworm has 95,000 genes. That simplicity, when coupled with the complexity of our microbiome, we, we really have two genomes. Right, one that's in our gut, and one that we got from our mom, if we were born uh, naturally. Uh, and uh, this, the amount of interactions there are almost, you know, beyond computational. You know, so you're talking about just a huge interaction effect. And this is really where the front edge research on the microbiome is now. Talk, um, you actually made a great comment. I was going to, one that's close to us, because I have uh, twin daughters that were actually born C-section because they were both breech. And uh, and I, I know that, like, you know, obviously coming through the birth canal is really their first exposure and helps set a lot of the, um, you know, the gut biota uh, for these kids. And so we dosed them with some, uh, you know, high-level probiotics pretty early. And, you know, have, I think we've never even given them antibiotics. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. I mean, ideally, as you, you mentioned, we pick up our mom's microbiome during birth. And folks that are born C-section, you know, they're less fortunate in that respect. So they do pick up a microbiome, but it's not a perfect custom-fitted microbiome that you would get from your mom at birth. Instead, they get a microbiome that comes from largely from mom's skin and from the dock and from other elements in the local environment right after birth. So, for example, folks born by C-section have maybe five times the chance of developing celiac. And uh, the, uh, you know, being born uh, uh, vaginally is a, a huge uh, advantage in life. Well, my wife's pregnant with number three, so, uh, yeah, we already talked about that. So hopefully the, that baby's not breached or Kate's going to have more problems. <laughs> I'll be like, just, just spin the baby. We can make it happen. <laughs> Wow, that's a uh, doc. I mean, this is um, this is pretty next level. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, how come uh, how come we're not hearing? I mean, like, I, I feel like I hear about this because you know, obviously we're we're offline and with Rob, and we're kind of in the you know the forefront of this fight, and especially with uh, ketogenic diets for, for, for performance. 
Um, I mean, I don't know if there's really that many people outside of Morrow and a few and, and ourselves that are really talking about it. How come this isn't bigger information? I mean, this seems like uh, you know, a, it, it, to, to me, it just seems powerful. It's and yeah, it's revolutionary. Like, and these are things. But I mean, we still get into fights with people that are like, well, what do you mean? I, I you know, if I don't eat carbohydrates, I'll die. And and you know, and uh, I mean, it seems like, uh, you know, the media and, and everything about it just keeps fighting this information, and it's almost, I'm at the point where I'm like, hey, you know what, we're going to be, you know, we're going to use these as performance sensing secrets, and you just keep doing your same deal, and we're going to run right past you. Yeah, it's amazing. It's it's almost a political issue. You know, you, you get this uh, really uh, remarkable response. You know, I, I have friends... Uh, uh, two or three fr three friends that work in the cancer world, in the cancer treatment world, and uh, you know these these folks have things like glioblastoma they're dealing with. You know the patients do. Glioblastoma is a very tough deal, and the standard of care is uh, miserable, and then you die, right? And you when one of them might suggest that a ketogenic diet could have some benefit, uh, they're usually told it's too dangerous. And it, it, it's like, am I talking to a Martian? How, how can it be too dangerous? This guy's got glioblastoma, right? Uh, and, and so there's real resistance. It's not minor, it's, it's major resistance. But, you know, in the cancer world, um, we're seeing uh, increased interest uh, in the diet, uh, you know, it harkens back to the old Warburg effect, but essentially all of the cells in your body, uh, or almost all of the cells in your body can metabolize glucose or ketones, but the uh, cancer cells are broken, they're defective cells, and they cannot metabolize ketones, and uh, this is part of the interest in this. Um, also, perhaps the way it lowers the IGF-1 uh, in the blood may also be a factor. There are other things that could be factors. But when you get a PET scan, uh, and God forbid, I mean, I'm not suggesting uh, any of you will have this, but uh, if you ever see a PET scan of a cancer patient, particularly a metastasized cancer patient, you'll see these little dots that are glowing all over their body. Uh, and that's because that's where the radionuclide that was injected is coming out through the skin wall and the detector is registering it as a dot. And how they do that is they attach the radionuclide to glucose. And wherever you have cells that are avaricious consumers of glucose, it glows on the picture. And that's what cancer cells are. They're avaricious consumers of glucose. And um, so it, this should be of interest, more broad interest than it is. And but we're starting to see change. You know, I, this was like a taboo topic for many years. Doc, we're very connected with the pediatric cancer community. We've actually funded two phase one clinical trials, and this this past year we inquired to the FDA about funding a ketogenic uh, trial for pediatric cancer patients. Mm -hmm but they immediately shot us down because they didn't want to restrict any nutrition or, or food consumption for these kids. Right. Do you see a, a possibility for a ketogenic study ever being done? And what do we need to do to get that? So, so I can send you some information offline on that, but yes, there, there are several ketogenic studies ramping up now for a variety of different cancers. And, uh, you know, it, it meets all kinds of resistance and, uh, you know, but glioblastoma is one, and, and there are others. You know, there is, um, you know, Dr. Seafried up in Boston uh, is one of the pioneers in this area, as is Dominic D'Agostino, and, th and there are quite a few others. Uh, Colin Champ, he, uh, he's at uh, Pittsburgh, and he, he's a, an oncologist uh, with this interest. So, yes, we, we are seeing these studies start. It's very difficult, though, and, and you run into this resistance that, well, gee, uh, maybe this is unhealthy. And you say, yes, but the person has cancer. Are you listening to me? You know? Doc, we, uh, we, um, uh, the way we got kind of into this uh, pediatric cancer deal is uh, four years ago, my wife's best friend lost her little boy to neuroblastoma. 
he was contracted at six months and uh, ended up fighting it off. And then it came back for the second time and took him uh, before he was a year old. And, uh, you know, we ended up starting, uh, his name was Wade DeBruin, and we started Wade's Army in memory of him. And, um, you know, when uh, originally we saw this thing playing out, uh, my wife was pregnant with, uh, with twins, and he was a twin, so he left his uh, twin sister behind. And as we went through it, my wife's like, there's something we could do. So we did a little bit of fundraiser, and his parents were like, you know, what are these guys in the gym going to do? And I think we raised, you know, just under 20 grand that first year, and now we've you know, gone 50, and now we're about at 100 in our third year. And, um, you know, the idea was we wanted to, to fund research and help families and kind of do this stuff. And, um, you know, like Tech said, uh, you know, we have a good friend, Dr. Fred Hatfield, and he ended up having some cancer issues. I want to think he had some form of lymphoma. And he ended up doing a ketogenic diet and basically erasing all effects of it. And so that was a big thing for us. Like, hey, you know, this is something that we really believe in. Can we get this funded? Like Tech said, we immediately got shot down. And uh, it's 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 pretty amazing that, uh, you know, here's something that, you know, just making some dietary issue changes for kids who, you know, are really at the mercy of their parents and the, and the healthcare providers around them would be fairly easy to do, especially with ketones or ketone salts. Um, it seems so simple. I, I just don't understand why, you know, uh, you know, like you said, is it, it, you know, like money or, you know, perception or what, but it seems like uh, we're like Beowulf just fighting the good fight, just trying to get out there and just spread some good information. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The, uh, you, know, and, you know, like, for example, some of the people that worked with Dr. Hatfield, uh, you know, they're, they're pushing this issue and they're, they are in the medical establishment but they're, you know, there are voices in the wilderness. Uh, again, not to be pessimistic, that is changing. It's remarkable that uh, that it's so difficult. But it's, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the reaction to the ketogenic diet is actually like open hostility. Yeah. No, I, I, I there's an oncologist that lives three doors down from me, and um, the guy works. I mean, I've only seen the guy one time. He works, you know, around the clock, and his wife's mother just died of lymphoma and had a terrible fight with it. And uh, I, I literally just saw him the other day with our kids were out riding bikes and he was talking a little bit about it. And I actually ended up talking to him a little bit about, you know, some ketogenic diet stuff. And he's like, you know, that's not even on our radar. Uh, at this point, we're just trying to, you know, get the people to eat and anything they want to eat, we tend to give them. And I, I it seemed like, so wait a minute, you're ready to pump them full of these toxic drugs that they indiscriminately kill everything. But, you know, let's not monitor the food that's going in, even though we know cancer cells live on sugar. It just seems, I don't know, I, I, like like hearing these things, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills sometimes. I'm like this, you know, and I'm, you know, it just, I'm sure for you it's even worse where you're like, wait a minute, hold on, let's let's take a step back and look at this rationally, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, beyond frustrating. Uh, you know, a guy that would be, uh, you would find interesting is uh, Dominic uh, D'Agostino. You know, he's a... Uh, uh, a power athlete, uh, now a professor, and uh, he is actively developing uh, some of the more interesting ketone esters. And he's the fellow that does the uh, the research with the mice I mentioned, uh, and the Navy divers. But uh, you know, he's uh, right there in Tampa. Very interesting guy. Yeah, he used to live in Tampa, Clearwater Beach. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we're we're supposed to head down here at the end of the year and go down and work with the Phillies. So maybe when we're down there, we'll check them out. And I also want to swing by and see Dr. Hatfield. Yeah, that would be, uh, that would be good. And you could visit this fellow at the same time. Wait, where, where you, you're out in, uh, where in Florida? I'm in, uh, mostly in Pensacola. We have another lab in Ocala, which is about an hour from Tampa, an hour and a half. Sure. Uh, most of the time I'm in Pensacola, which is very far from uh, Tampa. And then uh, Dominic, the scientist I mentioned earlier, he's in Tampa. Cool. Um, any, any other takeaways or anything else uh, you want to give us, like, um, you know, favorite movies, favorite books, hobbies other than kettlebells and training and messing with ketone esters? Uh, now, must, you know, work absorbs a, a, a big chunk of my time, as you can imagine, and uh, uh, it's, it's just been a fascinating ride uh, all these years. Um, and this latest... Uh, uh, turn of interest has been part of the fun. You know, it's a, a very interesting life. You know, they, as I mentioned earlier, I've been really looking at sarcopenia very closely 
uh, and that correlates also, you know, with wasting diseases in general, like you see in cancer patients. And uh, I, I think that's another place where the ketogenic diet, you know, when you talk to somebody in cancer, a cancer doc about ketogenic diet, even if they're friendly to the diet, they know it as a weight loss mechanism. So the very last thing they would like to see is the cancer patient losing weight. You know, that's, uh, that's something we haven't seen as much. I mean, uh, we've really seen like people decrease in body fat and some other things, but for the most part, uh, you know, the people that we've put on some ketogenic diets, as long as they're eating enough calories, uh, we never really see them have this kind of mass wasting that we always kind of hear about. It's just not something we've experienced. But also, I think it comes from people really losing options. Like, you know, if all of a sudden 60% of your diet comes from some, you know, complex carbohydrate source and now all of a sudden you switch them over, they just kind of naturally undereat. Yes, and, 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 you know, most of the fame of the ketogenic diet isn't in high-performance folks like you work with. It's mostly uh, folks really that are quite obese and are desiring to lose weight, and it's very effective in that context. Uh, when you're talking about the kind of folks you're working with, uh, it's more of a, a, a body fat reduction without losing muscle. Uh, and if you think of a cancer patient, uh, this could be another part of the benefit of the ketogenic diet, uh, just as I suppose, and something that I'm looking into is quite beneficial, I think, for sarcopenia for the reasons that we discussed earlier, the hormonal reasons as well as others. Uh, Doc, the other one which I was pretty blown away with, um, you know, we, we actually use the Compex in the EMS pretty extensively in our in our programming here and with a lot of our athletes and um, I actually end up work, came in, uh, going on and working with Compex to help design programming for them. Um, I ended up coming to EMS through Charlie Francis and some of that stuff years ago when I had a pretty severe uh, patellar tendon rupture and I ended up using EMS to really get back on the field. Uh, you know, and when, when you broke that on me, I was actually blown away because a lot of the same stuff that you're looking at in terms of keeping motor units firing and keeping the body working, uh, you know, we've seen huge dividends in terms of performance and actually supplementing that with our training. Wow. There's a lot of overlap there. I, I, I'd be pleased to hear more uh, about that because there really is no treatment for sarcopenia other than exercise, and even exercise is not, a, I mean, it's better than not exercising. But an age class athlete still loses quite a bit. And uh, I'm interested in how do you maintain those type 2 muscle fibers uh, in the best possible way? Well, uh, you know, what we found is that a lot, especially for older athletes with uh, different joint and other different problems, that really becomes a limiting factor in terms of their training. Um, so what, you know, uh, what I always talk about is, you know, Compex does everything, but it doesn't train your conditioning. So I know for uh, our older athletes, as long as we keep the conditioning fairly high with some aerobic and some glycolytic work, and then we end up supplementing it and using uh, the, the EMS and the complex units and ended up cycling through, um, you know, the different programs. Because, uh, you know, when we did the stuff originally with Charlie Francis, there was about a 14-week window of accommodation using the same frequencies. And so when I came on the complex and I looked at it, uh, what I was most excited about is that there was different hertz, which basically attacked different muscle fibers, and I knew that I could end up training, you know, type 1, type 2, and all the way up to the type 2X, uh, assuming you have them and they're available, and then we realized that there was this kind of low-hanging fruit kind of magic kind of area, and then basically being able to cycle through the different programs to avoid accommodation, and then pairing them up with smart kind of training, and then figuring out what the load was in terms of body parts and how we kind of went through it, and then we invented kind of some of our own places in terms of we used them. And then the other big one, um, I remember Charlie uh, Francis in his book made a comment that if you want to wiggle your ears, uh, the best way you learn to wiggle your ears is actually stimulate the motor units. So using the complex on the ears, they got people to actually um, start to wiggle their ears having used complex. And I remember hearing that comment, and it was such a powerful statement to me because then I started asking people, like, what's your limiting factor? And for a lot of people we ran into was grip strength. So then we started looking at the extensors and different movements, like we do these things called Kodai Killers, and we ended up kind of putting the EMS units on different parts of the forearm and the hands to develop grip strength, and it worked wonderful in terms of working in that way. So, I mean, there's some kind of key factors, and especially if you look at that uh, sarcopenia, um, you know, you can start testing on the, uh, uh, I don't know, 
totally forgetting the mechanism or the machine where you basically test your grip strength. And we yes. use it for, uh, you know, to know if an athlete's recovered or not. But that one ended up being really big. And um, then obviously looking at the body and realizing that certain muscle groups are at higher amounts of, you know, fast twitch muscle fibers. And then really kind of looking at um, not necessarily the body as a whole, but looking at specific parts of the body and how we develop it. So uh, we have about a, a year study, uh, you know, going online where I've been dropping into different training programs. And I think we have over maybe 400 different athletes using it around the globe. So we end up getting some discount codes and getting them into a lot of people's hands. So uh, it's been pretty exciting in terms of the effects of it. And I think it's one of those things that's so easy to use and how you use it. I think it's uh, the only way you don't get results is by if you don't use it. So it's uh, it's really great that, that, that you actually dropped that on me. I was pretty blown away. Yeah, I travel with mine. Uh, TSA often asks <laughs> If, uh, if you want to cause trouble, uh, the one um, I, I sell the one with the leads and the wireless actually like the leads better. And uh, trying to hook that thing up on an airplane yeah. scares people to death. I pulled this thing out, was plugging it in, and the lady next to me started like hitting the uh, uh, attendee button, you know. And I'm like, they came over, and then I explained to the to the uh, flight attendant what it was, and she's like, well, can you go do it in the bathroom because you're scaring these people. They see some big dude hooking up electrodes to a machine. They're going to think something weird's going to go down. Doc, do you have some TSA advice for us? Because Luke, John, and I got a, a big international trip coming up, and if I'm sitting on a plane for 20 hours, I'd like the compacts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I bring it with me, and I've been asked about it, of course. You know, they scan the bag, and, oh, it's this, sir. You know what I do? I don't leave it in the bag. You know, when they say take out your laptop, you know, I plop it in one of those little bins, right, with the laptop. And uh, if they ask me about it, I tell them what it is. And I don't, I use, uh, like, technical words for everything, right? So if the guy asks me what something is, I will use the scientific term for it, which <laughs> tends to cross their eyes. And uh, and they, oh, okay, oh, of course, that's what it is. You know? Well, Doc, I, I thought you probably have a NASA secret decoder ring that you can show them that probably gets you through everything. Whenever they see anything, you just show them your NASA decoder ring, and they're like, oh, he's with NASA. He's got the decoder ring. Let him through. Uh, I, I wish we had one of those. Doc, I, I um, uh, thank you for being probably one of uh, our most interesting, exciting guests. I was uh, really excited when you agreed to come on, and uh, you know we listened to a, a bunch of podcasts you've been on, and trying to pour through some of your research. So it was uh, really exciting to have us uh, to have you and some of your caliber on. So I thank you for taking the time this morning. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, um, I was eager to hear about your uh, the work you do with the folks that you're engaged with. Well, it sounds like we're kind of attacking this thing in different places. It's always uh, really cool when you meet people that are actually doing the same thing you are, just from a completely different space. And um, yeah, no, it's awesome. I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation offline, and um, you know, um, we'll be in touch. And uh, um, if uh, the people listening or anybody wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to kind of read up, or you know, where to find something about you, or you know, if you have anything to promote, or books, or whatever you want, um, how do uh, how, how do people find you and learn more? I, I've got uh, quite a few books, but uh, nobody would like them. The uh, you know they're very dry and full of formulas and stuff. Uh, the best place to find me is at our website, and it's ihmc.us, like United States. So ihmc.us, and uh, uh, my info's in there under people, and it's got, you can shoot me an email, and I usually answer them. And the website is uh, explains the work at IHMC as well. Cool. Well, I think we'll end it there. I'm, I'm sure uh, another podcast would be all your stuff on artificial intelligence. As I started kind of going down that rabbit hole this morning, I was like, oh, boy, this is uh, probably a 10-series podcast. So, uh, But uh, thank you very much, Doc, and uh, look forward to hearing from you again. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks, sir. Bye-bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Learn more about Dr. Ken Ford's research at www.ihmc.us. There you can find information about his work in human cognition and the study of ketones. Don't forget to keep your eyes peeled for our partnership with Caveman Coffee Co. A delicious and arousing blend of caffeine and power is headed your way. Until next time, bye!